NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. It's Friday, June 17th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us at Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So the big decisions in your life, like, for example, who you married... Uh, whether or not you bought a house or which house you bought if you did buy one, uh, where you live and where you think you might live for the next short while or long while, whether or not to have kids. How much of these decisions do you think came from you? Oh, a lot. Uh, Me and my wife together uh, in a lot of these cases. Like she had something to say about us getting married. Sure. (laughs) Okay, so partnership. Well, this week... Jonah Berger released a book called Invisible Influence. He's uh, the author of a very popular best-selling book called Contagious, essentially about how things take off. Um, And in this book, he talks about social influence and how, in fact, we make a lot of decisions on the basis of society and these social influences, as opposed to simply thinking that we are the ones making the decisions. Okay. A, I don't believe that. And B... Is, does this boil down to like peer pressure type stuff or something more nuanced than that? It's much more nuanced than that. So there are all kinds of ways in which social influences can change and alter the decisions that you make. And he talks about them really well in this in this book um, and, of course, uh, in the interview to come. But let me just give you an example. Let's say that you buy a car. Do you have a car? I do have a car. Okay. So how did you buy that car? I bought it based off of what I wanted and the color I like. (laughs) Yeah. So it turns out that there are a lot of factors that come into buying a car that maybe we aren't aware of. Like, for example, how often do you see that car being driven? Damn it. I hate this stuff. (laughs) How? Yeah. And and all all kinds of different ways. And I'll I'll let uh, Jonah do the talking. So he quantified some of these effects of how often you see things, how much like brands and advertisements just sort of subtly influence you probably even probably how much your friends do stuff and what they own and the way they talk about it yeah and i'm gonna like really overgeneralize here basically you know social influences can essentially alter your decisions in one of two ways you can be that uh wanting to conform uh, and in fact, your socioeconomic status affects whether you want to conform or stand apart, uh, or you can decide to go the other route, right? So if everyone's doing one thing, and you're the kind of person that wants to stand out, then you will go in another direction, even if it's not really ultimately beneficial to you. Wait, is it normal that I'm angry about this, that this is true? Uh, yeah, probably. I think that's the reaction of most people. And I think as you are looking at me, most people will have the same reaction that they have uh, in when we were talking about Maria Konnikova's confidence book. Uh, oh, of course, that's true of others, but it's certainly not true 
of me. So Jenna Berger is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania. And as I mentioned before, his previous book, Contagious, uh, was a New York Times bestselling book. And his current book is called Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. It's all about social influences. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Jonah Berger. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Jonah Berger. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start with talking about this notion of if we made different decisions in our lives, we would end up in very different places. So I was just recently thinking about the kinds of decisions that I maybe went to visit some friends in Portland who have a beautiful house who live a, a slightly more suburban lifestyle. And it made me wonder what my life would be like had I chosen that path. Uh, and your book indicates that a lot of the choices that we make don't really come from necessarily ourselves as we think they do, but instead have an invisible influence. So do you ever do this exercise of trying to figure out how your life would be different if you had made different choices? Uh, all, often, actually. Uh, I often do a similar exercise. And, you know, we, we think that where we ended up is the only place we could have ended up. Uh, you know, how could we be married to a different person? How could we have pursued a different career? How could we live in a different city? But some small things actually had a big impact on, on those decisions. And, you know, usually we think it's us. We think we picked the career based on what we like the best. Um, you know, we picked a city to live in based on our individual preferences. But we're actually not always correct. Uh, it ends up that other people have a big impact on what we end up deciding and the course of our lives overall. So let's talk about that social influence. And, and let's start with some of the, you know, initial studies that uh, indicated to psychologists that this really was a thing. And in particular, the one that I'm most familiar with that, you know, from my psychology early days is the Solomon Ash work. So tell us a little bit about that study. Yeah, so um, many of us have, have heard at least a little bit uh, about Solomon Ash, and we probably don't know him by name, uh, but his, his early work on what we now think of as conformity or, or imitation. Um, and actually, Solomon Ash, not everybody realized this, but was actually looking to prove somebody wrong. Um, so there had been a prior study uh, looking at social influence, um, and Ash didn't think it was right, and he wanted to conduct a new study. And so the, the prior study uh, had looked at whether people follow others. They had put people in a dark room. Uh, and asked them to estimate a point of light on the wall, how far that point of light moved. Uh, and if you're interested, you should try this uh, at home. It's actually quite interesting. It's called the autokinetic effect. And if you point a small point of light, a pinprick of light on the wall in a dark room, it will look like it moves even though it doesn't. And so if you're sitting there, you're sitting there in the dark trying to guess how far it moves, your eyes start playing tricks on you, eventually it looks like the point of light moved, but it's really hard to tell how much it you think it moved because it doesn't actually move, but you think it moved. So um, this other uh, psychologist, Sharif, uh, actually had people in the room with other people. And he wanted to see, well, if someone else says it moved two inches, do you say the same thing? And what he found is that people conform to others around them. So if you were in a room with somebody who said two inches, you were more likely to say two inches. If you were in a room with somebody who said four inches, you were more likely to say four inches. And so the conclusion to this was, wow, people conform to others. Um, and Solomon Ash read this research, and he thought it was interesting, but he thought it depended a lot on the particular task people were in. So in this case of a point of light moving in a room, people had no idea what the answer is. It's really hard to tell how much a point of light moved in a room. And so he thought, well, sure, you know, we conform to others when the answer is really uncertain. But when we know the answer ourselves, there'd be no reason to conform. Why would we follow others when we know the answer? 
Uh, and so he set up a very simple study to test that. He gave people uh, a set of lines, a small line, uh, a medium line, and a longer line, and asked them which of the three matched a separate line. So imagine seeing a given line, and you're given three lines, say, which is the first line the same length as? The shorter line, the medium line, or the longer line? And this is a really easy task. If you're by yourself and you're guessing which of the three lines matches up, you get them basically all right. But what he was interested in is, well, what do we do when other people make guesses? And in fact, what do we do when other people give the wrong answer? Um, would we actually go along with the group even when we know the answer's wrong? And so he really wanted to test, you know, not just when we don't know the answer, but when we're certain of the answer ourselves, do we still follow others? Uh, and if you ask most people, well, would you follow others in this situation? We all say, well, no, of course not, right? I mean, I don't want to see myself as a conformist. I wouldn't go along. I'd oppose the group. And yet when he actually looked at the data, he found that most people went along at least once and many people went along a good percentage of the time. And you're sitting there, you're in a group and, you know, someone says, let's say the answer is A and the first person goes, well, it's B and the next person goes, well, it's B and the next person goes, ah, oh, I guess it's B and it gets to you. You're sitting there going, man, my eyes are telling me it's A. But all these other people are saying, B, maybe I should go along with B. Um, and so one, I think this is interesting because it's one of the early demonstrations of the fact that people can form even when they know the right answer. But two, you know, we think, well, this is just a weird situation. We're never in that situation ourselves, right? Think about the last time you were in a meeting when, you know, you were trying to decide who to hire or whether or not to start a certain project or not start a certain project or direction to go on a particular initiative. And you might have had an opinion and someone else says something different and someone else says the same different thing. And then it gets to you. Would you actually go along with your own independent opinion or would you follow others? And what this research suggests is that you might actually go along with the group. And you make you make a great uh, you know scenario in your book about ordering dessert when you're out for dinner and... <laughs> I recently had this experience too myself where, you know, it, 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 whatever the first person said, whenever, when, if somebody said, no, I don't want dessert, then nobody orders dessert. But if one person is like, hey, let's have dessert, everybody orders dessert. Yeah. And what I think that points out is it's not just, are there a lot of people that think something? Even the first person who decides something in a group can have a big impact on the way the rest of the group ends up going. You know, we might assume, well, if 75% of people want the dessert, what does it matter what the first person says? But if the first person says, well, no, I'm going to skip dessert, and the second person was kind of on the fence, and so they go, well, if the first person said they'll skip it, I'll skip it too, now suddenly there are two people going that same way. And so the first person in a group decision can have a big impact on how the group de decides in the end, even if they could have gone a very different way if someone else had gone first. And this is a really important point that harkens back to your earlier book, Contagion, about, you know, sort of how things take off, because it seems that these early adopters in some way can have a huge influence on which particular option succeeds. So, you know, you talk in your book about a, a study of music downloads. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what that study found. Yeah. So, so they were interested in just this puzzle you pointed out, which is, could our tendency to follow others change what becomes popular? Um, and this research started out with a pretty simple question. Um, you know, we see big hits, so hit movies, uh, hit books, um, uh, you know, hit songs. And we assume that those are markedly different than the rest. That, you know, uh, J.K. Rowling's book, um, Harry Potter, did better because it was just a better book. And so it did so much better than the rest of the books because she's just a better writer than everybody else. Okay, that makes sense. But there's a fact that 
isn't exactly square with that, that first piece of information, which is the fact that actually J.K. Rowling got turned down by the first 15 to 20 publishers she went to. Um, they all said, no, this book isn't really interesting. It's not well-written. It's terrible. Um, and she's not the only example. You know, Elvis was told that uh, he would be a bad singer. Um, you know, Disney was told he wasn't a very good artist. He wasn't very creative, should do something else. Uh, and so the idea that certain things are better than others doesn't really square with the fact that even experts can't tell. So maybe we as individuals, normal folks can't tell, but the experts should know, right? The experts should be able to tell a hit song from a not-so-good song or a hit book from not-so-good of a book. And so why do even experts get it wrong? And so the study of music looked at this. They actually had people, uh, you go to a website, there's lots of different songs, about 40 or so songs. You could download any of those songs, listen to them, download them for free, uh, whichever song you liked. And it was not songs from famous artists, it was from artists you've never heard of, so like Metro 52 or you know some random punk band uh, that you haven't necessarily heard of. And what they found is that some songs were more highly downloaded than others. That's not very surprising. But what was more interesting is they actually divided the people up into almost different worlds. So uh, some people came to the study, they were randomly assigned to the first world, others came to the second world, others came to the third world. Uh, and what they found is in one world where there was social influence, where you could see what other people did, popularity was much more concentrated. If you could go and you could not only listen to songs, but see what other songs people had downloaded, people tended to click on the ones that were highly downloaded already. They tended to listen to them. They tended to download them themselves. And so the popular things got even more popular. We can think about it almost snowballing, the rich get richer. Okay, that makes sense. But what's interesting in the different ones of those social influence worlds, social influence world one versus social influence two, very different outcomes were achieved. So in one particular world, a given song would have won. And in a, uh, another world, that song was like last or second to last on the list. And what's interesting about those worlds is the worlds were exactly the same. Same people, randomly assigned, but same essentially average people in each world, same songs. So why did one song win out in one world and do terribly in another? Sure, people followed others, but why did that happen? And well, it turns out, just as we're talking about, that first few people have a big impact on what the rest of the people do. So the first person goes and they like punk music. They download a couple punk songs. The next person comes in and punk's already popular. They're more likely to listen and download those songs compared to another world where the first person might have liked hip hop or a different type of music. And so the groups can go in very different directions depending on goes, who's, who goes first. And so what's popular doesn't just depend on quality, though it does depend some on quality. It also depends on social dynamics and the, the fact that we tend to follow others. So, you know, in some ways, that's both encouraging and frightening, right? If, you, if you're a person who creates content, especially on the internet, where clicks and downloads are essentially your currency. Uh, and, and, you know, so I guess that's also in part explains why marketplaces like Amazon are very careful about how their reviews get noted. So for example, if you're an author and you have a book on Amazon and you tell all your friends to review it and then you send them the link and it somehow is linked back to the fact that you were the one that sent them the link, Amazon discounts all of those reviews. You know, so are, are we seeing this? I mean, do, do marketers already know this and, and have they been um, kind of influencing how popular something looks on the internet as a result? Or is this still relatively, you know, a free market? Yeah, that's a really rich and important question. And I think there are, there are a few answers. So first, it's not that popularity is entirely random. Uh, and as, I, as you mentioned, my, my last book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On, I talked a lot about characteristics of things that make them more likely to get more, more word of mouth, that make them more likely to go viral. 
Um, and so it is definitely the case that certain characteristics make things more likely to be successful. If they had looked at songs, for example, that people already knew, social influence might have played less of a role. But particularly in cases where we don't have a strong opinion, particularly in cases where we don't know the right answer, like that point of light moving in the room compared to the, the line lengths, which we should already have an answer or should already have a sense of what the right answer is, when we're uncertain, we're much more likely to follow others. And so particularly in those cases, you know, marketers try to think of, well, what can I do to influence your behavior? So if you go on YouTube, for example, and we, we've all done this before, and there's a video someone shares with you, what do you do before deciding to watch it? Sometimes you say, well, how many other people have watched it? And you assume if lots of other people have watched it, it's probably pretty good. But if very few people have watched it, it's probably not very good. Okay, that makes sense. We're trying to use others as a signal of quality, a sense of social proof. But marketers try to influence that. They'll go and they'll click on a, a, a video a bunch of times to get the number of views up so that when they release it, it already looks like it's doing better than it might have otherwise. Um, you know, for books, for example, there are entire companies you can buy um, that will buy a program to make sure your book gets on the bestseller list. Why? Because people assume if your book's on the bestseller list, it must be good, so they're more likely to buy it. So companies, if you pay them enough, will actually go out there and buy your book in a pattern in a way that encourages it to make the list. And so there's certainly companies that are trying to take advantage of this. And so us as consumers, we sure we should use others as a signal. Others do provide valuable information, but make sure they're providing the right signal and not necessarily a, a spurious one. This reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a development officer at a major institution who was in the process of, you know, getting one of these big campaigns going. And he was telling me that they needed to raise some, you know, absurdly large amount of money, hundreds of million dollars, uh, uh, millions of dollars. And I was wondering, you know, I was asking him, like, how do you start, you know, on that major mountain that you have to climb. And he said, well, to be honest, by the time the campaign goes public, it's already 75 to 80% funded. You know, we already do all of this backdoor dealing, get people interested so that we only really need to raise the last, you know, 20% publicly, which was shocking to me. But when I thought about it, it made a lot of sense. You know, are there a lot of these situations where, you know, we think that there's that, that, that we're kind of things are, 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 there for us to see. And yet there's a lot of this backroom dealing happening so that it seems as though we are on the right side of, you know, whatever the, the social group is. Yeah. So say you're a bartender uh, and you get on your shift uh, for the night uh, and, you know, you clean up all the glasses, you get anything, everything ready to go. You put out the tip jar what else do you do? Well, you don't just put out the tip jar. You seed the tip jar, right? You put a couple ones, maybe a five in there because you want to make sure that people know that you're a good bartender, all right? If they see that other people have tipped the bartender, they're going to be more likely to tip the bartender and then there's more money in there, which makes it more likely that the next person puts money in. If you go into a bar and there's no tips in the tip jar, you go, well, maybe the bartender isn't very good or, you know, maybe I'm not supposed to tip at this particular bar. Maybe that's not what they usually do. Um, and so when we're trying to make group decisions or when we're trying to raise money for a cause, we need to do exactly that. We need to seed the tip jar. We need to think about how can we build consensus for our side uh, and make it publicly visible, right? So uh, your colleague, for example, you're talking about uh, with raising money for an institution, they didn't just say, you know, well, we raised money, that's great. They made it clear to everyone else that they'd raised that money. They may have started out with the person that was the easiest donor and then used that person to convince the person that's the next easiest donor and use that person to convince the next easiest donor. And so by slowly working down the line, eventually when you get to the really difficult person to convince, you've already got five, six, ten, a hundred people on your 
side already, make it easier to convince that 101st person. And so rather than starting out with the most difficult person or a random person, start with the folks that are easiest to convince, seed that tip jar, and use that social influence to help convince others to do what you want them to do. That's excellent advice for any entrepreneur or nonprofit organization out there. But sometimes you need to do the opposite, right? So there are situations in which you talk about in your book where a certain brand doesn't want its branding diluted by an association with someone perhaps undesirable. So in particular, I'm thinking about some scenarios that you describe based on two characters from the Jersey Shore, Snooki and the situation. So tell us a little bit about uh, the kinds of brands that maybe asked those characters to do something unconventional. <laughs> yeah. So this is a, an amazing example, um, and it, it has to do a little bit with product placement. Uh, and so uh, your listeners may remember, it's a couple years ago now, but uh, Snooki was one of the breakout characters of the Jersey Shore. Um, uh, Jersey Shore was, of course, this show on MTV that was kind of uh, lampooning uh, some particular type of uh, young millennials who go out, like to party, uh, aren't really into high culture, um, and sort of generally make buffoons of themselves. Uh, and so Snooki was sort of the, the best of the worst. She was hilarious. She was very short. She kind of looked like almost like an orange parking cone. She used so much fake tanner. Um, uh, and she, you know, was known for quipping various things that made no sense, but uh, were very quippy and got picked up in, in the media. Uh, and so companies started sending her stuff. Uh, and that makes sense, right? Because, uh, you know, if I'm a company and I know that Snooki's going to be on the cover of People Magazine or get covered by InTouch and all these places, uh, and people see my brand more because she's using it, that should help make my brand more valuable, right? If, if other people see a celebrity doing something, that'll be good. That'll make them want to adopt the same thing. And indeed, celebrity endorsement is a well-known tactic in, in marketing. You know, companies pay huge money to get, um, you know, their dress or their jewels on the right actress at the Academy Awards. And so this is no different except one interesting fact. So, you know, Snooki was getting bags, uh, handbags, uh, and she got one particular bag, which is a very nice bag that she received, really excited to get it. Uh, but it wasn't the company that made that bag that sent it to her. It was actually one of their competitors that had sent her the bag. And so why would a competitor send a bag to someone? Because it would encourage that person to use the bag and lots of people would see that bag. Why would a competitor encourage people to see um, a particular bag? And, and actually, uh, same thing happened with the situation, another character from the Jersey Shore. Uh, so he was called the situation because he had a great uh, six pack of abs or whatever it was. Uh, and again, sort of not the most high culture guy. He got a letter from Abercrombie and Fitch. He loved wearing Abercrombie and Fitch clothes uh, and got a letter from Abercrombie and Fitch offering to pay him money. And again, no surprise. We think, okay, maybe they offered to pay him money to continue wearing Abercrombie and Fitch. They actually sent him a letter saying, hey, we're willing to pay you not to wear Abercrombie and Fitch, right? So why would Abercrombie want people to wear their brand less? And the reason is actually the same as the reason with a competitor sending Snooki a bag. The brands were worried that, well, if people like Snooki and the situation were using their clothes or using their brands, that that would make other people less likely to use them. Not merely, hey, we imitate others, we do the same thing as others, but well, social influence is actually kind of like a magnet. It can both attract and lead to imitation or repel and lead us to abandon or avoid things that others are doing. The idea is, hey, if someone like Snooki is using this particular brand, a handbag, maybe a bunch of other people that would usually buy that handbag would say, well, I don't want to look like Snooki. I don't want to buy that bag. Or people that would usually love Abercrombie and Fitch would say, well, if the situation is doing it, forget it. I'm, I'm not wearing Abercrombie anymore. And so they were aware of the negative effects of social influence, of leading people to avoid brands and were trying to discourage celebrities from wearing them. 
And you also talk about how sometimes this conformity can differ in terms of people uh, of different social classes, uh, different social socioeconomic statuses, and in different domains. So let's say people might be more interested in conforming, you know, in terms of what car they buy, but not in terms of the kind of job they do. So can you talk a little bit about how a person's social class might affect their willingness or desire to conform or not. Sure. So, you know, in American culture, I think we have this notion that that it's good to be unique and it's bad to imitate others. Uh, you know, as a kid, you're told not to conform, not to imitate, to be a unique, special snowflake who's different from everybody else. Um, and once you start to read uh, Invisible Influence, you'll quickly see that, you know, all of us are prey to social influence, whether we want to seem dim- similar or want to seem different. At the end of the day, we're all affected by others around us, even if we, if, if we don't realize it. Um, but it's actually not the case that everybody wants to be different. Um, there's differences in something called needs for uniqueness. Some people have a higher need for uniqueness. Some people have a lower need for uniqueness. And, and one study that showed this really nicely, uh, they asked a bunch of MBA students. They said, hey, you know, imagine you've got a new car. So imagine, let's say you buy a, a brand new, uh, you know, Mercedes. You love it. It's great. Uh, and a week later, uh, one of your friends buys the same car. How would you feel if your friend bought the same car as you? And the MBAs thought about it and they said, well, God, I'd be, I'd be angry. I'd be pissed off if my friend bought the same car as me. I mean, God, that'd be terrible. I'd, I'd hate it. Okay. And that's consistent with the idea that being unique is good um, and that being similar to others is bad. But then that same researcher didn't stop there. She didn't just ask MBAs. She asked a different group of people what they felt. Uh, and that different group of people was firefighters. She asked the firefighters, she said, well, you know, how would you feel if your friend bought the same car as you? And the firefighters thought about it for a minute and they said, wow, uh, you know, I'd, I'd actually be pretty happy. I mean, if the friend and I drove the same thing, that'd be great. I mean, let's, let's start a car club. Um, and I think those two different reactions are very telling about the role that socioeconomic status and, and other factors play in the drive to be different. It's not that being different is a good thing and that being the same is bad. People have preferences to be the similar or different. Some folks uh, prefer to be more unique, more different from others. Um, other folks, more sort of working class individuals, actually prefer being more similar. And so it's not that you know being similar or different is right or wrong. It's just a way of being as part of whatever culture you're from. Uh, you know, in East Asian culture, for example, it's actually being similar to others rather than being different that's valued. Uh, you know, people talk uh, about it's, you know, it's not the squeaky reel gets the grease, but it's, um, you know, the, the peg that sticks out gets pounded down. Why wouldn't you want to fit in with your family if your family is something that you care about? And so similar difference isn't just right or wrong. It's about fitting in with your social group or, as you said, also our domain of life. You know, uh, all of us would say, oh, would I, would I like wearing the same dress to a party as someone else? Probably not. Do I care if that person and I, uh, you know, eat the same sandwich? Well, not really. Uh, you know, do I care if that person and I use the same pen? No. Do I care if them and I have the same dishwasher? Probably not. And so there's certain more functional domains of life where we're very happy to be similar for others. Uh, we actually imitate others because their choices provide information. But other domains of life, more symbolic or identity-relevant domains, things like cars, clothes, and hairstyles, or music tastes, those are domains where we really want to be different. We see those domains as a signal of who we are. And so particularly if we care about being different from others, we pick things that not too many others have or the right others have. 
I think that's one of the things I actually really liked about your book is this notion that it's not that we all necessarily make the same decisions, but rather that the decisions that we make, we don't necessarily make for the reasons that we think we do, that there is a social influence and that social influence can point us in one direction or another, but it still affects the decisions that we make. So I just want to remind our listeners that your book, Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior, is available at booksellers everywhere. So how is it, though, that sometimes we can, you know, nod and smile when we hear these stories of other people conforming or being influenced by the decisions that other people have made? Um, And yet we don't necessarily seem to think that it applies to ourselves. So you also talk about this disconnect between, oh, people can agree that, yes, everybody else does that. But me, I'm certainly not influenced like that. That was the most interesting thing uh, about both writing the book uh, and doing the research that that made uh, made up the book, is that you know if you ask people, people will say they realize social influence exists. They go, oh, look around at all those other people. They dress the same. They buy similar cars. Um, you know, they vote the same. People vote the same as their friends. Sure, social influence exists. And then you ask them, oh, you know, why'd you buy your car? Why'd you buy your clothes? Why did you vote the way that you did? And they say, oh, no, I, I, yeah, my friends and neighbors, they didn't have any effect on me. I mean, sure, everyone else is affected, but, but not me. Um, and, and I think the easy reason, first of all, is that we think being influenced is a bad thing. Um, I think when people hear this, they go, well, yeah, you know, people don't see their influence because they think they think it's a bad thing. As you astutely noted, by the way, influence isn't just being the same as others. Even avoiding something because someone else is doing it is being influenced, right? People love to think, oh, we're different, we're unique. I avoid what everybody else does. If the masses are doing it, I don't do it. But that's not you not being influenced, right? You're still influenced by the masses. You're just avoiding what they're doing rather than, than doing the same thing. And so truly being independent, you don't see very, that, that happening very often. But, but it's not just that influence is a bad thing. It's not just that influence or sort of imitation and conformity are, are dirty words uh, in American culture. Um, it's also the fact that when we introspect, when we look into our mind, when we say, well, why did I buy that thing? Or why did I vote that way? We search for evidence of social influence. We search for evidence that we did something because others were doing it. But often we don't find that evidence. And it's not because it didn't happen. It's not because, you know, our neighbor bought something and we, we weren't influenced by it. We were, but we just don't realize it because it often happens non-consciously. It often happens below our awareness. I share this great example in the book, for example, uh, about how people tend to find others they've seen more often more attractive. Uh, so if, uh, you know, someone shows up to work more often or shows up to class more often, the more you see someone, the more attractive you find them. Now, people are surprised by that, but they don't realize that that affects their perception. They don't realize that the fact that they find someone attractive is merely because they saw them more often, or the fact that they bought a particular shirt might have been influenced by the fact that that color is popular this year because they're not aware that merely being exposed to things affected their liking. Uh, And so it's not necessarily just that it's bad, it's that we don't find evidence of it. When we look for it in our mind, we don't see it. But that doesn't mean it isn't doesn't necessarily occur. And it's often because that influence is pretty invisible. Yeah, I was I was kind of struck by that one study that you you uh, describe in the book where the professor had people rate uh, these four women in terms of their attractiveness. And, you know, tell us about that study. Yeah. So this is a study done, uh, I believe, at the University of Pittsburgh a number of years ago now, I think over 20 or 30 years ago now. Really simple. Uh, uh, A professor had a bunch of his students uh, rate how attractive they found four women. Uh, And these were women that had had been in class uh, that semester. And that's not surprising. You know, people rated one woman more attractive than the rest. Different people have different preferences. That all makes sense. 
What was interesting is the subjects were actually part of a study they were not aware of. So the professor manipulated how often each of those four women came to class. Though they weren't actually students, they were confederates or research assistants. One woman showed up to class not at all. One woman showed up to five classes. One woman showed up to 10 classes. And one woman showed up to 15 classes. And what the professor was interested in is what would merely seeing those people more often make them seem more attractive. And that's, in fact, what they found. So the woman who showed up to class more often was seen more attractive than the woman who showed up to class less often. And it wasn't merely that she was more attractive to begin with. To begin with, they were equally attractive. But the mere fact that people had seen them more often, it's called mere exposure. The more we see something, the more we like it. The mere fact that we had seen that woman more times made her seem more attractive and made people like her more. And yet when we talk about, you know, our, how we choose our partners, we often say things like, oh, I knew right away. <laughs> <laughs> right, which probably isn't true. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, we, if we're actually honest with ourselves, you know, uh, love is a whole, a whole nother thing. But, you know, we want to think it's magical and it's different and we see this person and we just knew. Yeah, what's really interesting is that most of the people end up marrying someone they meet at work or at school. Uh, and so if there's just one right person for you out there in the world, what's the chance that that person happened to work at the same office you did or go to the same college or university that you did? Um, and so we like to think uh, that our preferences are driven by one thing, whereas maybe they're driven by something that we don't realize. And I also, there's another study I wanted you to mention where, you know, you had, uh, I think it was actually from your lab or maybe from one of your research assistants where you had individuals look at two handbags from Longchamp that were very similar. Yes. Uh, yeah. So tell us the results of that study. Yeah. And, and this again goes back to something we sort of alluded to before, which is, do we want to be different or do we just want to see ourselves as different? Uh, and so we, we gave people two handbags to look at. Um, they were actually the same sort of Longchamp bag in, in different colors. Uh, and we asked people how similar those, those bags were to one another. Uh, and you would expect that you should have similar perceptions across people. You know, some people think they're a little more similar. Some people might they think they're a little more different. But on average, I mean, they're two bags. They look pretty much the same. They're different colors. Everyone should see them the same way. And what we found is, that indeed, if people didn't own one of those bags, they definitely agreed. They saw them as very similar. Oh, yeah, this bag is one color. This bag is another color. They're very similar. But if people owned one of those bags, they saw the bags as very different. Oh, well, that bag is completely different. I mean, look, it's an entirely different color. Like, it's very different than, than that initial bag. And so we want to see ourselves as different, even though we're not always that different. There's actually another story I tell in, in the book of, about a, a friend of mine uh, who's a lawyer in Washington, D.C., uh, and who had recently bought a car uh, and was complaining about how all D.C. lawyers drive BMWs. And I said, well, hey, you know, didn't you just buy a BMW yourself? You're a DC lawyer. You just, you just went along with the crowd. And they said, no, oh, no, yeah, but I bought a blue one and everyone else drives gray ones. And, and what I think is really funny about that is even if we pick the same things as everybody else, sometimes we're motivated to see ourselves as different. We focus on that illusion of difference that allows us to feel distinct, even if we're very much similar. Do you think this is partly to do with the fact that, you know, it is kind of arbitrary to decide which of the bags to buy, which are the color of the car you need to buy? And sometimes I find when I'm in those kinds of decision making situations, ultimately, the decision doesn't seem to have, you know, it just seems you, at one point you just have to choose. <laughs> but you could then have to go back and justify your choice and be OK with it so that you don't have buyer's remorse, so that you're not constantly worried about whether you're not made the wrong choice. So is a lot of this effect actually coming from what happens after you make the decision, where then you convince yourself that there was really something special about the thing that you chose? 
Certainly. And I think justification does play a, a big role in these processes. But I think it's the key insight that we're not always aware of, of social influence. You know, we, we haven't talked about motivation, uh, for example, but there's a whole chapter on the book about how others motivate us or demotivate us, pointing out, you know, how we run faster or swim faster when someone else is around. Uh, but other cases, you know, we get demotivated and give up and quit if someone else is doing better than we are. And so uh, the fact that others can motivate us to take action and demotivate us to not take action. And so you're right. Some of this is justification post-choice, but some of this is also even the actions we take uh, in the behaviors we're doing and how others shape those behaviors without our awareness. Well, you're leading me right to my next question, oh, which sorry. was going to be, no, it's great, which was going to be, you know, what effect does an audience have on uh, how, how we behave? So, you know, this is, this is the, if you're at the gym and there's a treadmill, we always pick the one that is the furthest away from anybody else, at least I do. Um, but there are some things in your book that suggest maybe that's not the best idea. So tell us the situations or the conditions under which uh, an audience can affect what people do. Yeah. So first is the mere fact that others can affect us. Uh, and so, uh, you know, whether you're thinking about losing weight, exercising more, um, uh, you know, trying to get a promotion, make more sales calls at the office, whatever it may be, comparing ourselves to others, social comparisons can be a really helpful tool to motivate people to take action. So the company Opower, for example, I tell the, their story in the book, um, they've used social comparisons to get people to save energy. Uh, rather than getting a bill in the mail that just says, you know, here's how many, uh, uh, watts of energy you've used in a given month. They send people a bill that says, here's how much energy you've used and here's how much energy someone in your neighborhood has used. Uh, and merely seeing how well someone in your neighborhood is doing is enough to motivate people to work harder and to save more energy. Uh, and so comparing yourself to others can be a great way to motivate people to, to do more and, and be more effective. We found in our own research looking at uh, a few hundred, uh, few hundred thousand NBA basketball games that uh, NBA teams that are down at halftime uh, are actually more likely to win than teams that are down, that are ahead at halftime, but just in one place, right around zero. So teams that are slightly behind, down by one, get more motivated. They come out and they're more likely to win than teams that are ahead because others provide a standard of comparison. They say, I'm almost there. I'm close to winning, but I'm not there yet. It encourages them to work harder. But there are other cases actually where others can be demotivating and lead us to give up. Um, so there are cases where, you know, if someone's too far ahead, we, we give up or the mere presence of others. You know, we've all been in the car trying to parallel park. Uh, and we find that, sure, when we're parallel parking by ourselves, we have no problem. We're trying to parallel park if someone else is in the car. Suddenly we're terrible. The mere fact that someone else is sitting next to us makes us worse. Uh, and so when do others help us and when do others hurt? Uh, and one factor, it turns out, one important factor, is whether the thing we're doing is already kind of easy or second nature to us. So if it's an easy task, something we're really good at, let's say you're, you're uh, often, you often go running, you're used to running, then running with someone else will make you run faster. But if it's something we're not so good at or we don't do very often, something like parallel parking, then having someone else will actually make us do worse than we did before. And so others can motivate us, motivate us to work harder on the things we're already good at, but actually make us worse at things we're, we're bad at. They did a great study, for example, where they asked people to tie either their own shoes or someone else's shoes. Uh, and they found that uh, having someone around made you tie your own shoes faster, but a pair of shoes that weren't yours, they either had you tie an empty pair of shoes or a pair of shoes with someone else in them. Uh, and the fact that someone else was present while you were tying those other shoes made you do them slower or worse. And so it depends on whether that task is something we're good at, like tying our own shoes, or not good at, like parallel parking. So 
I just want to end with one more question that I, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but it's something that we've been talking a lot about, especially when it comes to social psychology. And this is the the question of reproducibility. So, you know, your, your book is really fascinating. The research out there is really interesting. And I know it's sound. Uh, but there are a lot of people now who are becoming very skeptical of any kind of research that seems like it might be, you know, prone to a reproducibility problem. What do you think about the reproducibility crisis in psychology or economics? And, and what do you what is there anything that you do in your own work uh, to ensure that that the, the data that you provide will last? Yeah. And reproducibility is definitely a big uh, challenge uh, and point of interest uh, in the social sciences at the moment. Um, I think what excites me about a lot of the research I talk about in Invisible Influence is it's not one study. Uh, you know, we're looking across a decade's worth of work in a given area, or, you know, there are five studies that show one thing, others help, five studies that show something else, others hurt. You might say, well, that's a problem for reproducibility. But actually, if we look at a moderator, whether that's something we're good at already or something we're bad at, that totally tells us which way the effect should go. And so sometimes I think reproducibility is not just an issue of it's not actually there. It's that we haven't found the right moderator to explain when it's there and when it's not there. Uh, but definitely in my own work, I think a lot about, you know, how can we look at a problem from multiple angles um, and, you know, study it in different cases and situations and uh, populations so we can make sure it's, it's realistic. But I think a big challenge, and I definitely feel this way as an author, is the media encourages things that are counterintuitive. Uh, you know, the media wants something that seems like it completely goes against conventional wisdom. And sometimes as an author, you know, or a researcher, you put a piece of science out there and someone uh, finds the one piece that's the most counterintuitive and makes that sound like that's the entire finding. And so I think as consumers of research, you know, we need to be willing to dig a little deeper and we need to be a little more patient with science. Uh, you know, it'd be great if every scientific finding was completely counterintuitive, but I think most things build slowly to a better way of understanding an area, even if they don't completely turn on its head uh, what we've known for 50 years. And on that note, I want to thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. So I should think about influence as not necessarily being a bad thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that we all, especially in the U.S., think that we need to be unique and that we need to always, you know, follow our hearts. And there's all this kind of wisdom about that. But um, in the end, I think that's as most people are learning who do spend a lot of time following their hearts, that there are just too many variables out there. And that if you put so much pressure on yourself to, you know, accomplish and be happy and so forth, just because of every decision that you ever made, you know, to me, that is not only unrealistic, but it also can lead to what I think is probably a kind of learned helplessness or depression later on. Because think about it, if you enter midlife and you haven't achieved all the wonderful, successful things that you hoped that you would when you were five, and the only person that you can blame is yourself, that's kind of a tough situation to be in. But if you acknowledge that there are all these other influences, including these social influences that influence the kinds of decisions you make every single day, then it doesn't seem quite as much your fault if you haven't reached the heights of success. So let me track back to something my parents used to tell me, and that was to surround myself with people that I aspired to be, like studious people, people that worked hard, all of the qualities that they cared about, not necessarily the ones I did. Uh, could that work here? Can you game the system a little bit by creating social influence around you? Absolutely. And I think that's actually one of the take home points of this book is that these 
you, you can be aware of these social influences, but you can also kind of make sure that you are getting the benefit of them by surrounding yourself by people that you admire or, you know, depending on the case, uh, you know, which decision that you're trying to make. But but yeah, I mean, I think that that's sort of the take home message, which is that by understanding these influences, then we can decide how much uh, we want to you know, be privy to them or whatever, um, and how we want to shape our our social interactions. I don't think that's a take home message at all. I think the take home message is, I can get brands to pay me not to use their product. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that was really fascinating, and uh, I, I feel kind of sad that you know no brand is paying me not to use their products. <laughs> okay, Diet Coke, I'm gonna start working on you next. <laughs> All right, that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. So we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, Brendan Ryan, and Anonymous. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, things that you would, brands that you would like us not to buy or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. <laughs>